So let's get right into this. I'm, uh, I'm going to be talking about Jesus on prayer, but before I do, I want to talk about three things that have uh, kind of been on my mind and heart since 8 o'clock this morning, because I... We had an 8 o'clock prayer meeting, then an 8.30 prayer meeting, then John Gray, 9.30, uh, did a really good uh, Bible teaching. Uh, I'm st- st- we were doing better for a while at getting everybody here at 9.30. We're a little little light on that today. And, uh, you know, the whole thing of could not you not watch with me one brief hour, I just encourage you to. Uh, it's really like... What we're trying to do is is a lot of churches have like Sunday morning, Sunday night. I don't like to multiply meetings, so I just like to get more out of one meeting. So I just really encourage you to be here at 930. So John Gray talked a little bit, not just a little bit, he talked most of his message today about reading Scripture. And uh, that kind of overlaps with my theme because when whenever I do... Uh, uh, I have a series called Effective Prayer, which I actually haven't taught at this church before, although I've taught parts of it at this church back in 2005, according to the Dropbox. Uh, <laughs> but um, And it's also, uh, of course, emphasis, ele- that same subject would be emphasis 11 of the uh, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series, Do you know that you can pray more or less effectively? Prayer can just be an activity, or prayer can be a dynamic thing that changes the world and changes us. And so God's intention is that we would learn to pray effectively. In 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, uh, John, of course, who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, you know that most people think John was about 14 years old when he left his father uh, Zebedee in the boat and uh, to fish on his own and decided to follow Jesus. I'll bet that wasn't a popular decision. Although it's interesting in those movies, The Chosen, they flip that around and make it look like John's father was all for it, which is quite interesting. Um, nobody knows, of course. So, um, John says in 1 John five fourteen and 15, he says, we know that if we ask anything according to God's will, then we know he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know that we have the things that we asked for, or for which we asked. So the key to effective prayer is first and foremost Praying what God has revealed in Scripture to be His will. So we're gonna we're gonna visit that a little bit more as we go today. Um, so my first first little extra point, no extra charge at the beginning, is that uh, when I, usually when I do a series on prayer, I usually have one particular teaching in the series that I call five types of prayer. The first type of prayer is reading the scripture. So I used to, you know, you hear a lot of Christians talk about, well, my prayer time in the morning. And I used to think of that as kind of a subjective, feely time, and we're trying to sense God's presence, maybe be introspective, whatever, or maybe we're working a prayer list or whatever. But, 
you know, the, Jesus said the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. The first and for, foremost way to hear God speak is to read his word. Did you hear that? You know, don't go by some subjective feeling, this or that or the other. Like, read the whole of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed by God. And if you believe that, then, you know, John Gray was talking a lot today about having various plans to read the whole Bible. And that would be just something I strongly encourage. You know, one of the, um, there's another uh, in this, in another series I do called Search the Scriptures, which John referred to today, um, he referred to uh, chapter one of that called The Bible and the Importance of Bible Study. But I think chapter five or so is, is called Five Approaches to Bible Study. And um, one, of, one of the approaches to Bible study is what you would call the devotional approach. And in the devotional approach, you kind of read slowly, contemplatively, and reflectively, and you kind of let the Word of God speak to you, encourage you, challenge you. You might do some confessing of sin. You might do some repenting. You might do some crying out to God for grace to, to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, things like that. But you're interacting with God, and you're probably just reading a small portion of Scripture. So one of the things I discovered a lot of years ago is that most Bible-believing Christians have been raised up to read the Bible primarily that way. The problem with that is that you, uh, you spend uh, 45 minutes or an hour on a paragraph or so, and you don't ever read, so you don't ever put the scripture you're reading in the larger context of the backdrop of all scripture being breathed by God. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth. Uh, you know, a sum is not really that complicated. It's all the parts, right? So, um, scripture, the first most important thing about scripture, there's probably two two equally important keys to to, to studying scripture in terms of how to interpret it. Uh, and so I don't know which one to call number one or number two, but so we'll call them 1A and 1B. I don't know, one and one. But, uh, <laughs> but one of them is that Jesus Christ is the meaning of all scripture. So in everything we do when we read scripture, we're looking for how it reveals Christ. And in fact, what we call the apostolic hermeneutic, something that gets a lot of talking about at this church, uh, how did the apostles use the Old Testament to write the New Testament? Look at all the ways they unveiled Christ. And as, uh, as the old promise goes, and go and do likewise. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's the one thing. But then the other thing is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So you can't really understand Scripture except against the backdrop of the whole Scripture. So that's uh, extra point number one, no extra charge. 
Number two is, is I want to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. You know, uh, we've been in kind of a season where some people have been seeking God with prayer and worship meetings and little small group worship meetings, and some people have been fasting on Mondays, others on Wednesdays, some on Fridays. Uh, some people have been doing two or three day little fasts and so forth. But there's definitely been some, some very encouraging times of worship and prayer and so forth. But it seems like one of the things that we're kind of missing in modern times that's uh, almost a little surprising. So, you know, sometimes there, we do have kind of a generation gap that, that kind of happens in the church. You know, my wife and I are, let's just say, uh, uh, I won't say how old she is, but it's, but I'm well past 60, as you know. And um, most people in our church are well under 40, and quite a bit well under 40 in most cases. So uh, it used to be, biblically, the thinking is that a generation is 40 years, but most people would agree nowadays that because of the, the rapidity of, of uh, technological change, in modern times, that most generations are about 20 years in modern times. And so, you know, sometimes we actually do have a generation gap. And so some things catch me by surprise, to be honest, as an old, old geezer pastor. Uh, and one of them that really catches me by surprise is how little people are prepared for spiritual warfare. You can't have God speak to you or visit you or sense his presence or be encouraged or get some deliverance or have a, an encouraging word of guidance or whatever without some immediate backlash. And it seems like more than any other group of Christians I've ever read about or studied about, it seems like modern Christians are totally caught off guard by that. It's kind of like, you know, you're playing football, but you didn't expect that the other team was going to hit back. <laughs> you know, they, they are. <laughs> They're going to hit back. And it hurts. And you're, you uh, serve not only yourself, but you serve the whole church well to be prepared for that. So you, you kind of want to consider some things, like Paul actually told us that we're not supposed to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. So one thing for sure is he's the accuser of the brethren. Uh, listen to this carefully. God has people that he wants to use in your life. To the degree that he wants to use someone in your life, to that degree you'll have spiritual warfare against that person in terms of accusations in your heart uh, so that you can't hear from them. The more he wants to use someone, maybe your spouse, maybe your kid, I don't know, whatever, uh, maybe your boss, I don't know, uh, to whatever degree God wants to use someone, to that degree, you're going to have spiritual warfare in that relationship. And it's going to primarily come in the form of accusations and trying to divide you. 
You know, I was in a, a meeting recently with some wonderful Christians, and they were telling me that God was blessing this particular family in such a, way, a certain way, and uh, that the presence of God was there, and, and new breakthroughs in the terms of the unity in the household relationships, and were good, and so forth. And uh, three or four days later, someone notified me that, like, the whole thing's a, a mess, and they can't stand one another, and so, you know, someone's thinking of moving out, or, you know, but, you know, it's like, whoa, how'd that all happen in three days? Uh, because they weren't ready for the fact that uh, when, when you uh, make any kind of breakthrough in the Lord, listen to this carefully. Like, if you don't have this memorized, what, why not? <laughs> you should have this memorized. The word of the Lord is tested as silver refined seven times. So like in Genesis 3, it's like there's no new tricks out there. It's just like our, our uh, it's like are, are we dumb enough to fall for the same old ones? You know, the serpent started with, indeed, hath God said. So, you know, you get prayed over. Maybe some people prophesy over you and give you some encouraging words. People, people write down a bunch of scriptures, take them home. And the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get tempted not to believe any of that. And circumstances aren't going to seem to line up. And someone's going to go, how are you doing? You're going to say, fine, under the circumstances. And someone else is going to go, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? <laughs> That's probably not a good place to fight from. So that's just uh, no extra charge. That really wasn't what I wanted to talk about today, but that seemed quite appropriate based on what happened in the 8 o'clock prayer meeting and the 8.30 prayer meeting and uh, the 9.30 John Gray teaching and the 10.30 worship. Uh, hello, McFly. You know, like, <laughs> there's, you know, like, there, there really is, uh, you, you, guess what? There's really a person called Satan. And he really has a, a type of, of subordinate called satanic angels. And they really have a, a type of subordinate called demons. And if you don't know who all those people are and so forth, they exist because God in his love for you knows that you can't grow up without overcoming them. This, you need the word of the Lord to be tested so that it can become part of you. The word must become flesh and dwell among us. All theology must become incarnational. If it's just theoretical ideas and you read a lot of good theology books but it doesn't actually deal with how you resolve problems in your marriage or in among brothers or whatever, then it's just religious nonsense. Are you following me? 
So, you know, 1 John 3, he says, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? When anybody says, oh, John Luke's a really spiritual guy, which I think he is, uh, my first question is always going to be, well, who's he really spiritual with? Hopefully that starts with Sam and Stephen and whoever, uh, Kyle, I guess, and, uh, you know, because he lives with those guys. And then expands out from that to, to other people in the church. There is no spiritual maturity apart from good relationships. In fact, that's the number one indicator of where you're really at with Christ. So that was number two, no extra charge. Number three, no extra charge. Um, grace and challenging ourselves in, in, in uh, various disciplines. So we live uh, in a time... Uh, where we are the most prosperous people who've ever been on the planet. In uh, approximately 7,000 years of human history, no one has had as little need of clothing, food, shelter, uh, those kind of things as we have. We have an epidemic of obesity, I have my credentials right here. And uh, uh, we have, most of our pets need diets. <laughs> like, really, that's true. And um, the more economically challenged people are, generally the more uh, subject to obesity they are. Because we have so much availability of food that you can't possibly hope to keep any kind of weight in check unless you know a lot about all the different kinds of foods, like the glycemic index and like, you know, the different kinds of fats and the different kinds of carbohydrates. Not all carbohydrates are the same and so forth. And so we, you know, we live in a time when you're never more than about 60 seconds away from very delicious food that you could, you know, like you can drive through drive throughs at three in the morning. You can, you know, in my house, I have five freezers and three refrigerators, one on every floor, including my study. Because <laughs> I'm too lazy to go downstairs in the middle of the night to get a bowl of cottage cheese and peaches. So, you know, so I have them upstairs or whatever. Um, that's what I had for breakfast this morning at 4 a.m. or something, 4.30. Um, 2% cottage cheese with a little, one of those little cups of peaches. <laughs> uh, that was breakfast today. But, uh, you know, and it took me uh, less than 60 seconds to get to it and prepare it and probably 60 or <laughs> seconds to eat it. No, I, I, I tried to make it stretch out for two or three minutes. But... Uh, I use an iced, tea, iced teaspoon, so I'll have smaller bites. The fact, the fact is, it, the God said to Israel, uh, when, you, when, when you sought me, I prospered you. And when I, when I prospered you, you grew fat and forgot the name of your God. Part of our problem is we don't have very many needs. 
right? So, um, you know, and everybody is very loving and generous of food. You know, I used, used to stop by the Bradbury's, and Lourdes would always cook me, like, <laughs> rice and vegetables and pork chops and all you know, all these kind of things, such as I love, as the scripture says, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but everybody's like that, <laughs> like, you know, like, come over to their house, they, you know, like, you know, Bethany's always cooking for you, or whatever, you, you can't stop by anyone's house without being offered food, so, uh, so, so, what I, so what, what I would say is this, when it comes to things like uh, whether you get here to church at 9.30 or 10.30, it just, it's really ab- about whether you prioritize God or not. It really is. And, of course, that mattress, like, I have a great relationship with my mattress. I mean, I love my mattress. I think my mattress loves me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we switched to one of those, what do they call those, uh, the cushiony ones, memory foams uh, some years ago. Great step forward. But, uh, <laughs> and my memory, you know, my mattress calls me. Like this morning I set the alarm for 3.30, then uh, changed it to 4, then 4.30. <laughs> Finally I got up at 4.30 when I probably would have done, uh, I probably wouldn't have been late for John Luke's prayer meeting had I set, kept it at 3.30. Uh, so, The, the truth of the matter is, is that the, the area of, of disciplines, you've got to always reposition yourself in the terms of grace and the gospel every day. Because you're not going to be any more loved by God because you read your Bible today. Nor are you going to be any more righteous because you didn't have that, you know, uh, pizza that you can throw in the oven in five, or whatever. So you really got to rethink the gospel every day. That's why we did a 130-some part uh, series on the gospel because the gospel isn't just to, to you know, make a decision by. The, you know, we, we talk a lot about we need to move from a decision-making model of evangelism to a discipleship-making model of evangelism. The gospel is how we live as disciples of Jesus Christ. And you have to reposition yourself by grace every day. Many cases, many of us would be well benefited to reposition ourselves by grace several times a day. Because, for instance, if you uh, struggle with condemnation, then you're not, that's because you're not approaching God by grace. And there's all sorts of negative ramifications that happen when you, perf- when you approach God by a performance base. You become conflicted where you're both self-righteous and self-critical at the same time, right? And then you're uh, critical of others who don't measure up to your legalistic standards, whatever they might be about earrings or hair or whatever kind of crazy nonsense you're you know, want whatever kind of legalistic rules you want to make. You know, the only difference in performance-based systems 
is your, you know, your Anglican and your Roman Catholic and your Baptist performance-based systems will have slightly different rules about some things, but performance-based is full of death. No matter what labels on it, and grace and, and our our sin nature is inclined to embrace a performance-based approach to God. Because a grace-based approach to God leaves you no room for pride whatsoever. Because you're totally reliant on the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his spirit. And you're living Galatians 2.20 every day. Uh, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now, if you have things like judgment in your heart toward another brother or sister, toward your spouse, whatever, that's God's gift to you to see you're not grace-based. As soon as you find that rising up in your heart, you know that you're, that you're uh, you know, I, I was with a very good brother uh, recently who, who opened up to me and to our three other brothers that he had a lot of judgmental attitudes toward this one brother in his heart, and it was because he was like comparing himself with each other. And what does Paul say? If we compare ourselves with ourselves, we're both without understanding, right? Uh, if you've if you find that kind of attitude arising in your heart towards your spouse, towards your, uh, you know, like single brother, roommate, or whatever, whatever situation you're in, it's God's gift to you to help you uh, to realize you're not finding him based on grace. So you've got to start with grace, but then listen, it's a very, it is an important thing it won't make you more righteous before God. But, you know, uh, if you've been married more than, like, oh, 20, 30 minutes, um, you know you can have a better relationship or a worse relationship. If you lived in a single household more than, say, 20 or 30 minutes, then you know you can have better relationships or worse relationships, right? And so, uh, being... Being grace-based is, is an absolute necessity to have any kind of fellowship. I always say true fellowship only happens on the other side of the cross. You know, one of the things you'll find is when you meet other Christians, uh, they'll, they start posturing. Oh, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? Or, you know, like they're, they're trying to figure out in their performance-based scheme, are you couple notches, uh, you know, below them or whatever, or how can I get you there in my heart? So I never even play that game. Like when I go to the pastor's meetings, they, they always based uh, like how you're doing by like how they call it, how many people are you running, which by the, what they mean by how many people go through the turnstile every week. And, uh, you know, and so I always go, well, we have about like 12 or 13, sometimes 15, but most, most of us aren't really saved. But, <laughs> but we're, you know, we're, we're, we're just seekers, you know. 
I'm primarily seeking a way to get out of this meeting. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know uh, so here I do want to say this. We do seem to be in a season where a lot of people are a lot more lax about a lot of spiritual disciplines. Don't be a yo-yo Christian about, like, have certain things that you kind of keep Faith, you know, I used to have a teaching that I that I called faithfulness and basic Christian disciplines. It was one of my few ever. We we used to have like eighty five foundational tapes. This was for a church I pastored in the eighties, and um, it you know they're always series, as you know. But this was one that I that there was no series. It was just a standalone tape, which that's weird for me. But uh, but you know, think you know, there's some things like. Uh, you know, your, your Bible study, which is what John Gray was driving at today. Uh, you, know, like get, you know, like make sure you have some spiritual disciplines about biblical studies, about worship, about prayer, about relationships. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't uh, have relationships that you haven't, you know, gotten them right. Learn how to deal with the real issues in relationships. So many people get, you know, like it's hard to work through anything because they're like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about Well, talk about the real issues and get them really resolved. And if you have to, get some coaching on how to do that. Because you'll never be anywhere so healthy or solid with God till you're, till you're really good at relationship conflicts and handle them well. And guess what? The way God gets you there is he gives you hard people to get along with in your life. Right? And so many people want to, what they want to do is avoid God. And so, so they'll go, well, like, you know, Teresa's too hard, hard to get along with, so I'm going to get, you know, distance myself from Teresa. Well, guess what? Here, here's the saying you should memorize. If you, if you fix the fix... Before you're fixed, God will fix another fix to fix you. If you fix the fix, before you're fixed, God will fix another fix to fix you. In other words, God gives you that difficult roommate or that difficult boss or he takes you through, you know, your tropical fish die or something. <laughs> because he loves you and you probably need it. God's ordained wonderful Christians to misunderstand you, misrepresent you, and accuse you falsely. Because he loves you. In fact, I always say, if there aren't, like, if you're walking in God's will, you should have some people who are hearing what you're saying and following you, some people who respect what you say, but they would never follow you because they don't want to go that far or that, be that radical, and you should definitely have some people who are opposed to you. And if you don't have all those categories, go back and read the New Testament. Because there's no figures in the New Testament that didn't have all those three categories. 
Jesus is so popular in America. You know, there was a rock band in the 70s. Jesus is just all right with me. Oh, my God. Jesus was so upsetting to people, they thought they, they had no choice but to kill him. When's the last time they ever said, we got to get rid of this Sindhu? <laughs> she, she's upsetting whole, whole cities. All right, let's get into today's message with the 15 minutes we have left. All right, so we're going to talk about Jesus on prayer, and I'm probably going to only be able to talk about it for five or six minutes, so I'm probably going to have to talk about it next week, I guess. Uh, but I want to talk about, uh, the, why are we talking about Jesus on prayer? The first thing I want to ask us is what, what type of expert are we talking about? You know, we have modern-day commercials and endorsements by celebrities. And so I, I read some articles about, there's a celebrity some of you might have heard of. He's a fairly famous actor named Matthew McConaughey. And he uh, is the pitch person since 2014 for a type of car called Lincoln's that's part of the Ford Motor Company. And um, if you know him, he's a pretty decent actor, uh, not great, but pretty good. And um, he's in a lot of famous movies and that sort of thing. In his personal life, he's not very well-educated or whatever, but I'm not trying to be disparaging, but he's not real bright or what have you. But it's interesting that he endorses this product, Lincoln, and their sales have gone through the roof. And what's interesting about it is that uh, there, there are three or four uh, famous celebrities, of which I should know. I don't know my celebrities very well. One of them's Ellen DeGeneres, or some people call her Ellen DeGenerate or whatever. But, uh, but they have parodies of, of Matthew McConaughey's uh, commercials. In other words, they have commercials that make fun of his commercials. And yet, the, the, what, the, what works actually in terms of sales is any publicity is good publicity. So because when McConaughey became the spokesman for Lincoln in 2014, immediately three or four, one of them is one of the late night comics, but there's three or four comics that have commercials that make fun of Matthew McConaughey's being. So Lincoln sales have gone like through the roof because of Matthew McConaughey. And so, uh, but it's interesting that none of the commercials do have anything to do with like the horsepower of the car, the car safety features. It's, uh, they're all based on like image with no substance. And so not, and, and uh, yet people, you know, these are not cheap cars, by the way. Um, you want to see a cheap car? <laughs> see, I've got one right back here, but uh, at least it's paid for, right? <laughs> Those bumper stickers don't laugh. At least it's paid for. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then, um, honestly, when we talk about what type of experts, we sometimes today we'll say, um, oh, I was re- saw somebody on Facebook that was endorsing something that a pastor named Evie Hill said, the, and, and I, I don't do Facebook very often, about once a week or every two weeks or something. And, and I always liked Evie Hill back when he was alive, and so I sent back a positive comment or a like or something. But um, 
you know, today we'll go, well, you know, so-and-so said this or so-and-so said this or whatever. And so here, here's what I want to kind of make sure we're clear on. If the name of this teaching was Greg on prayer, what I would have done if I were you is I would have, like, uh, looked for an excuse to sneak out to, and go out the back down to the restroom and just gone right on by and worked your way through around to the fellowship hall and see if you couldn't attack the lunch line a little early because, you know, the truth of the matter is what Greg on prayer would be a waste. And I'm not just trying to be like humble or anything. That's just the facts. So when we consider in the Bible... Um, when I do my series on prayer, one of the, again, we talked about there's five types of prayer. And so one of them that I spend several weeks on is called intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is fairly easy to study because A, you can uh, separate out from all the intercessory prayers in the Bible, you can separate out seven or eight important principles that are always uh, involved with intercessory prayer. Secondly, you can separate out various biblical individuals such as uh, Abraham. Well, of course, Abel, Cain and Abel, Abel, Abraham, um, Moses, Nehemiah, Ezra, that are great examples of intercessory prayer. Ironically, of course, Jesus is the great example of intercessory prayer as he died on our behalf. So... Um, you know, Daniel's uh, intercessory prayers and so forth. Now, something that is a very worthwhile part of that series whenever I do it is I do a thing on Paul's teachings on prayer. So we look, we break it down into um, what did Paul ask for prayer for for himself? That's pretty important, isn't it? Uh, secondly, what Paul actually talks about, what he prays for, he'll tell the Corinthians, I always pray for this. There's both in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, there are several passages where uh, Paul talks about what he prays for the Ephesians every day. I've learned, as far as human beings, I probably learned more about prayer from my pastor, Ray Nethery, who considers it his most important ministry uh, for our church, that he prays for us at length for several, for quite a while every day. And I actually think we probably would have gone under without those prayers, to be honest. Uh, so, so all that's important, but I, I kind of want to make sure we understand something here. Jesus on prayer is such a unique, important, special person on prayer that he's in a very league by himself. And so let, let, let me at least introduce that, and we'll probably have to end with that today. Uh, first of all, Luke 5. When Jesus uh, is asked by the leper to be cleansed, you got to understand what leprosy was in Jesus' day. That would be uh, like someone with AIDS asking you to give them a hug and a kiss. You know, like to... to 
uh, leprosy was feared by everyone. Lepers had to yell, unclean, unclean, and they had to live in special colonies and so forth. And Jesus regularly and often touched lepers. And Jesus is demonstrating something very important that Jesus, because of his prayer life, because of the level of the spirit that he was filled with, he's basically showing that clean is stronger than unclean. And, uh, you know, in the age of COVID, it's kind of like he was ignoring COVID because he was filled with the spirit. So a very important verse in Luke 5, it says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Now, um, whether you're on the leadership team or not, if you've gone, you know, been a Christian longer than, say, 20 or 30 minutes, that seems to be a, my theme today, you probably realize that it, the Christian life is not just difficult, it's downright impossible. And one of the reasons it's impossible is it wasn't meant to be lived by natural means. Without the supernatural, it's impossible to even try to even walk with God for a day. If you're doing things that a, nor- that a normal person could do, you're probably not understanding this yet, to be honest. It takes supernatural grace. And one of the, you know, one of the, um, the most difficult things about the Christian life is there's always about 36 to 20, 42 hours worth of priorities that you need to accomplish every 24-hour day. <laughs> right? Anybody been there? Anybody can relate to this? You know? If I only had more time. And yet, you know, Jesus is, he's, the crowds are coming after him so much, he actually has to pre-plan to have a little uh, boat pushed out into the lake, uh, the Gennesaret, uh, Sea of Galilee, it's also called, so that he won't get trampled by the crowd. And yet, even though they were demanding this, that, and the other thing of Jesus, he would always get alone with God to pray. You know, I love in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus, uh, it says that he appointed the 12 apostles that they might be with him. We forget that part, right? We always think, oh, he appointed them to send them out to preach. But it says the first thing he appointed to do, them to do was to be with him. Guess what? The first thing God's called you and I to do is be with him. Now, there's ways in which corporate prayer is a being with them that private prayer can't accomplish. And there's ways that private prayer is a way of being with them that corporate prayer could never accomplish. And in the midst of all the priorities, 
you know, people are getting master's degrees or whatever. They're, you know, starting side businesses. One of the things I often tell people, especially if they're in a difficult time of testing, simplify. Get rid of your side this, your side that, whatever. Uh, Sometimes that's the wisest thing you can do so that you'd have more time to seek him. Sometimes it's really good to step back and say, do I really need to have this, you know, side business or the, do I really need to ride my bike this much? Do I really need to, you know, whatever time-consuming thing you're investing in, it's really good to ask yourself, what's the return on this compared to just getting away and seeking God? Well, because of time, I'm going to stop there, but I am going to flip over the page Roman numeral two, when Jesus says, teach us to pray, um, I, I want to make sure you understand a couple things. A, what I did, did there so you can do it on your own is that past where I have Luke 11, 1 through 13, I often will list the whole portion of what I want you to read, but it, it's not all on the page because I'd run out of page. So I only have Luke 1, or 11, 1 through 8 on the page. Um, I don't have verses uh, 9 through 13, but I encourage you to read the whole passage on your own. And what I have there is, if you see the words that are in italics, the words in the italics are Matthew's version from Matthew 6. Because Luke gives us a more abbreviated, uh, abridged version, kind of like Reader's Digest condensed books. And so I gave you the fuller version from Matthew in italics there. So you can compare the two right in front of you. But instead of thinking of the Lord's Prayer, hopefully we'll we'll have time. I don't know. We'll see if I feel led to stay on this subject next week. The Lord's Prayer is often a prayer recited in various Christian traditions. I don't have any problem with that. But Primarily, it's an outline for prayer. It's like the principles that you pray. You pray things that bring his kingdom. He wants his will to be done on this earth or in the red house, uh, the same as uh, in the, you know, Kosler house or in the Weiss house or in Grace Christian Fellowship. He wants his will to be done uh, in schools or whatever. He wants it to invade the seven institutions that we often talk about that are inevitable in all cultures. Secondly, I want you to notice some things that Jesus emphasizes. Then I'm going to stop. One is in Luke 11 and 18, he emphasizes persistence. So when Jesus says, don't use vain repetition... He's not saying that you don't pray for the same things again and again and again and again. Because that would negate what he's saying in Luke 11 and 18, which he tells you, keep praying for the same things again and again and again and again. But he's saying don't use a formula 
that, you know, like uh, there's a thing, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I know quite a bit about Roman Catholic theology and uh, value my Catholic uh, upbringing on, on some levels, in very many levels. And um, one of the things they have in, in Catholicism is a thing what they call ejaculations. Now, I know that's like a weird word in our culture, but what they mean is like if you say Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, a thousand times, you get a certain amount of points <laughs> or grace. And you're, you're taught that as a little Catholic kid. That's what Jesus is saying, don't do that. He's not saying that, um, you know, John Gray can't pray for a raise a thousand times, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Uh, you know, he's not saying that John Gray can't pray for Adam to get a raise a thousand times. In fact, he should. And Adam should pray that he'd get a thousand raises. No. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it's not that you shouldn't pray the same things. That, so keep that straight. Uh, next, last, the other thing is, is the whole point of humility. Uh, I really wished I had more time. You, as you know, Luke 18, um, one of my favorite testimonies of all the Christians in our church, of course, is Melody, now Osborne. Uh, and the fir- I think it was maybe the first time I met with her, I don't remember, remember when she kind of shared with me that she was, uh, when she was away at college, she went to spend some time with the Lord with, in prayer, and he took her to that passage, and he showed her that you're more like the Pharisee than you are like the publican. Now, to me, that's the most powerful testimony I've ever heard. Right? Because guess what? It's part of our sin nature to be more like the Pharisee than the publican in that respect. And if you really want to learn about effective prayer, then instead of treating humility as something sort of obscure, study what is humility. Because humility is not what most people think it is. Most people are what I call humble bumbles. Yeah, uh, you know, like, oh, John Bradbury, you did a good job. No, I didn't. No, I don't know how to grill at all. You know, like, you know. <laughs> Fire? Never heard of it. <laughs> you know, when, of course, he's the grill master in, in, in our circles, anyway. True humility, like, don't forget that Moses said the man Moses was the humblest man in the whole earth. He wrote that about himself. True humility is a strength in an, in an accomplishment. It's, a, it's, an, it's abilities that you understand come from and return to and, and give God the glory for. They're initiated by God and they're, and they're complete, uh, sustained by God and they're completed by God. So, and then lastly, I wish we had time to talk about, there's a place for corporate prayer. You can't have like a corporate fast in secret. You know, like, let's all pray, but don't tell each other when. And, you know, like if you're really in the spirit, you'll figure out where to show up and when. <laughs> I think they do that in communist countries for safety, actually, I've heard. That uh, there are probably some countries where that's probably the 
Safest way to have a prayer meeting. Don't tell anybody where it is. The ones who are in the spirit, they'll show up. <laughs> there, it's, it's okay for corporate prayer purposes to tell people you're fasting or you're praying or, you know, especially if three of you are fasting together so you get on the same day or the same page or whatever you're trying to do. But then there's also places to do these things in private. And there's a, there's a kind of blessing that doing them in private brings about where enough, uh, you know, just, I don't know, other than how Jesus explained it, God will reward you openly. And I, I don't know that that necessarily means you get acknowledgement or goes to the head of the class. I, I frankly think if that's what you were after, you, you know, that as Jesus said, you'd have your reward in full. I think it's more that what you're looking to see God do will be accomplished in such a way that it changes the situation for everybody. And so I I just want to end by saying this. We are in a season where we need to seek God. We need to keep striking the ground until the presence of God increases in our midst in significant ways that bring about deliverances, healings, people getting baptized in the Spirit, all that kind of stuff. Don't forget that there's a, there's a spiritual warfare price to pay, and don't let yourself get picked off. And one of the ways to, be, to do a season like this is don't get performance-based in how you do it, but do increase your, your spiritual disciplines. Don't miss meetings. Don't be late. Don't skip the 930 meeting. Don't you know, uh, well, we were on a Bible reading program, but we let that get away from us. You know, you know, step back and re-strengthen all your fellowship disciplines, your study disciplines, all that kind of stuff, because that's, that framework will keep you safe uh, in, in a time of spiritual warfare. Uh, let's have a, a bishop here.